Welcome to Sojourner Truth. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. On Sunday, October 31st, the United Nations Climate Change Conference kicked off at the COP26. That is the Conference of the Parties in Glasgow, Scotland. 25,000 delegates from 200 countries are attending and around 120 heads of state. The conference, which was delayed for a year because of the COVID-19 pandemic, will run until Friday, November 12th. Wednesday, November 10th, March one of the most critical days in the ongoing COP26 conference of the parties in Glasgow, Scotland. The conference has the stated purpose of taking global action on climate change, which is accelerating the environmental devastation of our planet. On Wednesday, the governments of China and the United States agreed to increase climate cooperation over the next decade. The world's two largest CO2 emitters pledged to act in a joint declaration. The declaration aims claims that both parties will work together to achieve the 1.5 temperature goal set out in the 2015 Paris Agreement. It also calls for stepped-up efforts to close the significant gap that remains to achieve the target. However, the joint statement was very short on detail, and without detail, no one knows what, if anything, will come out of the U.S.-China agreement. U.S. President Joe Biden and Chinese President Xi Jinping of China are even expected to hold a virtual meeting as early as next week, this according to the BBC. Also on Wednesday, a draft agreement being circulated at the UN Climate Summit um, says, among other things, it calls on countries to phase out coal power. However, the draft agreement has been roundly criticized for failing to address the crisis, and the UN Secretary General said that as of now, COP26 is on life support. By all accounts, unless something dramatic happens, it seems that governments will have failed yet again to stem the climate catastrophe. Here now, the voice of Mary Robinson, a former president of Ireland, giving her emotional reaction to the failure of governments. Let's hear that clip right now. The leaders who are here now, this is on your watch. Sorry, it's so important. You know, we are literally talking about having a safe future and you know, the elders are pressing the leaders and um, understand um, this. You can't negotiate with science. You can't talk about a glass being half full. We have to get it down. We have to be on track for 1.5 and it is doable. Um, Mary, so if, Mary, I can see how you're reacting yeah. to this news that we are on track for 2.4. Yeah. At 2.4, we say goodbye to parts of the world, don't we? Are leaders taking it as seriously and feeling it like you are? Well, you see, I think leaders of the Climate Vulnerable Forum, the uh, poorest countries, yes, they're in crisis mode. But unfortunately, I'm afraid some of the leaders who could do most are not in crisis mode. I do think, you know, we should call out the countries. Yes, China can do more, and it's a pity they haven't been here as head of state. Russia, similarly. But also Brazil, um, Australia. Australia, a wealthy country, is still 
in fossil fuel mode, not in crisis mode. Well, I think and, we need to talk and, about and, the and, geopolitics yeah, yeah. here, Mary, and, don't and we? And Saudi Arabia. Yes. Uh, well, um, Saudi Arabia in particular playing dirty games. Well, that's what I want to yeah. ask you. It feels to me yeah. like it's shaping up to that being the real block yeah. here. Is, it, yeah. is that what you see? What, what Saudi Arabia have been able to do is take language out of a lot of the text. Language that refers, even to in the, fuels. Um, you know, the, the, the reference to ACE, as it's called, the 10-year plan for education on climate change, for youth. They've taken out all the language of youth, human rights, uh, gender equalities, um, sustainability. You know, so if you take uh, that and, out, and, we and, can and, forget and, fossil fuel And how were they able to take the language out? Because not enough countries were in the room. Um, it's my experience in previous COPs. Saudi Arabia's always there. All righty, and that was the voice of uh, Mary Robinson. Sorry, her uh, clip was cut off there. Uh, CO2 has been known to be a direct cause of climate change by the trapping of heat and what is commonly referred to as the greenhouse effect. CO2 emissions from smog and air pollution make up more than 80% of the greenhouse gases emitted in the United States. This according to the Environmental Protection Agency. Results of the climate crisis include a rise in average temperatures uh, in, which have increased across the world, causing heat waves, wildfires, land degradation, melting of the polar ice caps. In delicate environments such as coral reefs, mountains, and forests, many species are forced to relocate or face becoming extinct as their environment changes. Soil degradation also plays a major role which is what happens when the quality of soil declines and diminishes its capacity to support animals and plants. When soil degrades, the process that takes place within it are damaged. This causes a decline in soil health, biodiversity, and productivity, leading to issues at all levels of many ecosystems and resulting in large environmental consequences, such as floods, drought, and mass migration. Overall, climate devastation is threatening humans with food and water scarcity, extreme heat, disease, and poverty. Our guests today include Suparna Lahiri, who is based in New Delhi, India, and is the Global Forest Coalition's climate campaigner and advisor. And also Vijay Kumar Talam, advisor to the government of Andhra Pradesh for agriculture and corporation in India. He's also in charge of implementation of natural farming, and we are going to listen to a presentation he made uh, just a few weeks ago. Also, uh, Patrick Iocomedes, who is with the California Poor People's Campaign. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines. For Pacifica Radio, I'm Eileen Alfandari. China and the U.S. have agreed to redouble their efforts to fight climate change with concrete actions. Their joint statement was announced in the final days of the COP26 climate summit in Glasgow. The Chinese envoy's remarks were translated by Al Jazeera. 
Climate is a common challenge faced by humanity. On the subject of climate change, there is more agreement between China and the U.S. than divergence, making it an area with huge potential for cooperation. The United States and China have no shortage of differences, but on climate, on climate, cooperation is the only way to get this job done. China and the U.S. produced the largest amount of global warming emissions. China promised to follow the U.S. lead and crack down on methane, too. Greenpeace responded, saying it's always welcome news when the world's two biggest emitters cooperate on climate change and a reset of their relationship on this crucial issue is overdue. But the group noted that ultimately the joint statement falls short of the call by the climate-vulnerable countries demanding that nations come back to the table every year with greater ambition until the gap is closed on actions needed to reach the goal of limiting global temperature rise to one and a half degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. Meantime, Denmark and Costa Rica have launched an international alliance grouping governments that have committed to move their economies away from oil and gas production. South Africa's last white apartheid-era president, F.W. de Klerk, has died at the age of 85. De Klerk shared the Nobel Peace Prize with the nation's longtime freedom fighter and first post-apartheid president, Nelson Mandela, for their joint efforts to pave the way to a peaceful transition to a multiracial democracy. It was de Klerk who, in a speech to South Africa's parliament on February 2, 1990, announced that Mandela would be released from prison after 27 years. I wish to put it plainly that the government has taken a firm decision to release Mr. Mandela unconditionally. I'm serious. Retired Anglican Archbishop Desmond Tutu, a towering anti-apartheid activist, issued a guarded statement about de Klerk's death. His foundation said de Klerk played an important role in South Africa's history. He recognized the moment for change and demonstrated the will to act on it. But the statement said de Klerk tried to avoid responsibility for the enormity of the abuses of apartheid, including in his testimony at the Truth and Reconciliation Commission chaired by Tutu. At the time, Tutu expressed disappointment that de Klerk did not fully apologize for the evils of apartheid. The defense in the Kyle Rittenhouse murder case says it will seek a mistrial with prejudice, meaning the case could not be refiled because of a line of questioning by the lead prosecutor. The judge in the case berated prosecutor Thomas Binger after he peppered Rittenhouse with questions, asking him whether it was acceptable to use deadly force to protect property. And you'd agree with me that you're not allowed to use deadly force to protect property, correct? Yes. But yet you have previously indicated that you wished you had your AR-15 to protect someone's property, correct? Rittenhouse said he acted to defend his life when he fatally shot two people and wounded a third during a chaotic night of protests and vandalism in August of last year. Protesters were in the streets of Kenosha, Wisconsin, after a police officer shot African-American Jacob Blake in the back seven times. He survived with a serious spinal cord injury. One of the three white men charged in the death of black jogger Ahmad Arbery told police they had him, quote, trapped like a rat before he was fatally shot. Glenn County Police Sergeant Roderick Nohilly testified that defendant Greg McMichael made the statement a few hours after the February 2020 slaying. 
At a prayer vigil outside the courthouse, the Reverend Al Sharpton called the shooting of Ahmad Arbery a lynching. He also condemned the makeup of the jury of 11 whites and one African-American. For a jury to be seated, to be in panel in a city that's majority black with 11 whites and one black, not even a tenth of the jury is black in a city over 50 percent black, is an insult to the intelligence of the American people. Travis McMichael has said he shot Arbery in self-defense, claiming Arbery tried to grab his gun. A federal judge has ordered a halt to enforcement of the Texas ban on mask mandates in the state schools. Federal District Judge Lee Yackel ruled the ban ordered by Republican Governor Greg Abbott violated a federal law protecting disabled students' access to public education. And this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. And before we uh, go into our regular programming, we want to give a nod to all veterans out there, all Sojourner Truth listeners uh, who are veterans and all veterans today being uh, Veterans Day. And uh, there is some news from the administration on this Veterans uh, Day. And uh, apparently uh, President uh, Joe Biden has made an announcement for a series of actions to help veterans, this according to NBC News, who were exposed to burn pits to and other contaminants while serving in the military. And it will now it is said be easier for veterans to prove that they were exposed and uh, they're pushing to find links between exposure and potentially uh, deadly uh, diseases. These open air pits, um, people may know, were very common at U.S. military bases during uh, the wars in Iraq and also Afghanistan. Uh, a lot of veterans exposed to very dangerous uh, chemicals and are now uh, suffering the result of it. Uh, President Biden has said that his son, Beau, who died of cancer, was um, was linked uh, to exposure of these burn pits when he was deployed in Iraq. So uh, veterans are uh, being urged to go to register to find possible uh, clusters. And I want to give a shout out to the veterans in my family that uh, go way back to my grandfather on my mother's side, but also my brother, um, uh, Peter Prescott, who served in the Vietnam War with the U.S. Air Force, and then his son, uh, Sean Prescott, who served as a Marine, of course, uh, much uh, later. So all the best to all veterans out there and in recognition of the PTSD, the suffering, the high suicide rate, the high homeless rate of our veterans today being Veterans Day. We are now going to uh, turn our attention uh, to uh, a presentation with Vijay Kumar Thalan on nature's solutions to climate change. Uh, this is in India, and people are hoping that what they have done in India can be repeated in countries across the world. This as we continue our coverage on the environmental crisis. So let's go to hear uh, the introduction to Vijay Kumar and then hear his presentation. He is the Agriculture, Agriculture and Cooperation Advisor to the Government of Andhra Pradesh, 
in India. He directs the implementation of natural farming in the state and has dedicated years to social and agricultural projects that empower communities and alleviate poverty. From 2000 to 2010, he led the Society for the Elimination of Rural Poverty in Andhra Pradesh and led the mobilizing and empowerment of 11 and a half million rural poor women into thrift and credit-based self-help groups and their federations, enabling them to come out of poverty. From 2010 to 2015, he was the first mission director of the National Rural Livelihoods Mission for the government of India with a vision of mobilizing 100 million rural, rural women into self-help groups and federations. He has been special chief secretary, agricultural department in Andhra Pradesh. And after a time in 2016, he was appointed as the government in agriculture. Nature solutions as a national policy. And it's very, very appropriate that we are discussing uh, these issues and they concern the lives of the farmers. The vision of our state is to take natural farming to all 8 million farmers and farm workers in the state of Andhra Pradesh, India. Uh, this is where, uh, this is India, and this is where we are, the southern part of uh, the country. Uh, we have a population of 54 billion people. We have a very long coastline, and we also have a very uh, semi-arid area in the southern part of the state. So we have uh, 8 million farmers and landless farm workers. And I should also mention that 86% are small farmers having less than two hectares holding. So this is both a challenge and an opportunity. Uh, so this is our context. We have uh, rainfall here around 550 millimeters and goes up to uh, 1200 to 1400 millimeters in the northern side. Now, why did we get into natural farming? Uh, why did we see the reason for this change was acute distress of farmers and the, the quality of food that the consumers were getting. And more important was, as Walter pointed out, the continuous degradation of the soil, the water stress, water emergency. So you had a crisis, multiple crisis, farmers distress, consumers' health, and uh, environmental crisis. Now, these are all interrelated. And I think the most important thing was we, we understood that even though these seem as disparate problems, they are all coming out of the way we are dealing with our own uh, soils. And uh, so can farming in harmony with nature can it be the solution to these multiple crises? Because you may say, what's the link between a health crisis and a farmer's distress and soil degradation? But I would like to you know, say that all of them are interrelated. And that is our effort to solve these multiple problems by going into the root causes. And uh, natural farming is that holistic land management practice that leverages the power of photosynthesis in plants to close the carbon cycle and build soil health, crop resilient and nutrient density. Walter said that we have to bring the CO2 in the air, into the soil to create this uh, soil carbon sponge. And uh, how do we do that? 
these are the principles of natural farming and these are universal they are applicable in all the countries and the photosynthesis process is the critical one so the first principle is you know to keep the soil covered with living crops 365 days of the year and where it's not possible at least cover it with uh, mulch and have crop diversity incorporate trees in the landscapes in the farms 15 to 20 crops do not disturb the soils integrate animals into farming and one uniqueness in in andhra pradesh in india is the role of biostimulants uh, they are uh, you know acting as a very very essential catalyst to trigger the the activity below ground and increasing amount on diversity of organic residues including crop residue mulch using indigenous seed and pest management through better agronomic practices and botanical extracts so these are the eight principles and we have one nine red box a no no synthetic fertilizers pesticides herbicides weedicides so these nine principles uh, are universal but practices are again very location specific context specific and uh, i'll just take you through what are how are we what are our practices in uh, andhra pradesh so as i mentioned the first one is to keep the ground covered and uh, this is something you know i'm eternally grateful to walter for highlighting the role of photosynthesis the root exudates and the soil carbon sponge so this is what this is our recommendation to farmers not to keep the ground barren and have multiple crops within so you have here a mango orchard with intercrop similar and another mango orchard with uh, cereal crops uh this is a seed coating inoculum from uh, cow dung cow urine some lime and handful so this is the inoculum this is the seed inoculum then uh, this is a soil amendment again this cow dung used uh, cow urine jaggery so this is a soil microbial inoculum where uh, the farmers uh, use this to trigger the soil biology this is a liquid inoculum used uh, for you know once in 10 days to 15 days and uh, these are the pest management practices you can see here they using neem leaves we have more than 200 botanical formulations farmers are quick to innovate uh, and make these uh, you know botanical formulations there are also agronomical practices mechanical ways of trapping insects the idea is not to use chemicals uh and uh, again uh, we are encouraging farmers to protect their own seeds and also conserve indigenous seeds so this is the biodiversity uh, local seed sovereignty that we are encouraging and uh, this is something which you know uh, comes to the the water cycle part the the how do we how does natural farming impact on the hydrology and uh, as all where the soil carbon is low the soils are non porous and non permeable but with the soil biology being activated we actually have uh, porous soils we also have uh, we improve the water holding capacity and the third fa factor which is extremely critical to what we are doing is harnessing water vapor for irrigation 
and uh, this is something we'll be eternally grateful to walter for educating us on this so in tropics there are he told us there are 10 rivers of water in the air and you have up to 50000 parts per million of uh, water vapor so we tested this hypothesis of whether natural farming will enable the crops to get this uh, to harness this water from the air and uh, it's about third year of our experimentation and we've been extremely successful you can see here one uh, plot of land which was completely uh, degraded it's uh, i think almost 10 years since this land was cultivated and you see the women farmer here she has laid out this uh, wooden mulch and uh, she has covered the soil with uh, crop residues and she has sown this 10 to 15 kinds of seeds with uh, the bio inoculum and you can see the germination and this is what i call as the miracle of pre monsoon rice sowing and this is where these plants are actually harnessing water from the air and our objective is uh, how can we build year round 365 days green cover and thereby uh, regenerate soils uh, reverse the land degradation this is again her crop and mind you this is the first year of the regeneration exercise this is our footprint now in our state we cover about 28% villages and 10% farmers and farm workers so 750000 farmers and in the current year we are targeting around 1.1 million farmers and farm workers and this is funded by the government and by philanthropy azim premji philanthropy is uh, you know funding this whole program and uh, in terms of impacts if you look at uh, you know typically people look at yields uh, and the cost of cultivation and then so we have been doing independent assessments uh these have shown that there is very significant reduction of costs the yield differences are not significant in many cases the yields of natural farming crops are much higher uh the there is significant increase in the net income for all the farmers but in addition farmers have reported better soil health crop health biodiversity resilience economic empowerment of farmers uh this is a, a snapshot of the yield story this is uh, this 2019 season and you can see majority of the crops these are all the, our most important crops nine crops account for 80% of our uh, crop area so majority of the crops the yields of uh, farmers doing natural farming are higher in some of them they are lower uh, but the net income is very significantly high and here we see the resilience to floods uh, we had a series of uh, heavy rain incidents and floods last year uh, so the, the plot grown with uh, natural farming practices was able to withstand these floods and uh, we also have a household uh, homestead gardens these are for uh, for everyone but a special focus on the landless uh, farm workers because they don't have any land so this is the practices in their homesteads so that they can uh, get uh, nutritious food uh, throughout the year and uh, this has been especially helpful to them during the corona crisis because they could get uh, the diverse 
crops during in their own homes and you can see here we see very significant improvements in biodiversity uh, and it's it's wonderful the way nature comes back if we don't uh, you know destroy it. and uh, yeah so this program has had a series of uh, innovations all coming together and i would say in terms of uh, the six uh, the several important innovations government support has been very important uh, and i think for anything to scale up government support is a must both in terms of uh, ground level implementation but also at policy level and uh, then our investment in uh, taking this knowledge in a farmer friendly manner to the villages through videos to print material and also our uh, focus on research uh, then at the grassroots level our most important uh, you know strength foundation has been the women self help groups and their federations uh, and the knowledge extension system is not a top down system it's a farmer to farmer extension system and we also realize that this is a long term hand holding required for this transition because we have to change the mindset of last 60 70 years that it's only through chemicals that farmers can do farming so that requires a very good grassroots based organizations working with farmers so you have government you have ngos and community based organizations doing this uh, hand holding support and we learn continuously from the farmers from their own innovations and we have strong uh, collaborations with global and national institutions and uh, within the government there is great understanding that this is very important in multiple dimensions not only farmers livelihood but health of citizens so we have a program where we are taking it to the schools and also in uh, centers for uh, you know uh, where pregnant women nursing mothers get nutrition support so so different government departments are collaborating with us and uh, uh, just to highlight the importance of the women uh, self help group movement something we started 20 years ago in our state and in the program area about 120000 of these women self help groups representing about 1.4 million women are uh, at the center of uh, you know supporting the program through variety of ways through collective action learning from each other planning management of the program financing the individual farming plans and taking into account uh, vulnerable farmers uh, this is how the meeting process happens on a continuous basis in the villages and we have a farmer to farmer extension system you see the women here uh, sarojini so her word is respected in the village because she herself is a best practicing farmer so we have an army of around 6000 such community resource persons who are uh, you know involved in this exercise and as i mentioned we we spend up to 8 years in a village to ensure that there's transformation of the entire village so this is very essential uh, doesn't happen in typical government program so our specialty is to ensure that uh, you know this continuous support because this is knowledge intensive agriculture this is not uh, input intensive so that takes time 
because it's unlearning and relearning process. So this is a hallmark of our uh, project. So I'll conclude here uh, by saying that we do not inherit the earth from our ancestors. We borrow it from our children. So it is for the sake of our current generation and the next generation that uh, you know we all have to come together. And I'm really so happy to present this experience of us here. Thank you very much. Alrighty, and that was uh, Vijay Kumar Thalam, advisor to the government of Andhra Pradesh in India. He is the advisor for agriculture and corporation and in charge of implementation of natural farming there, the movement of natural farming, something that is growing around the world. And why are we interested in this as we are talking about climate devastation, environmental devastation, and the climate crisis, while there is rightly a lot of focus on emissions uh, coming uh, that we're, we're facing around the world, um, not enough attention is being paid to what is happening to the soil and how soil regeneration could really help to resolve um, some of what we're facing. I mean, a key element in resolving the climate crisis. We're gonna be try, we will try to gather more information and share that information with you for a lot of people. It is new information for people out there who are gardening or who are farmers. This may not be such new information. Of course, indigenous people have used uh, natural uh, farming for uh, for a very, very long time. But what we are going to do now, we're going to take our station break. And then coming up for our weekly Earth Watch, we'll be speaking with Parna uh, Lahari, he's also, he is based in New Delhi, India, and is the Global Forest Coalition's climate campaigner and advisor. And also coming up, we'll have someone from the Poor People's Campaign about a climate crisis, important climate crisis webinar that's coming up this weekend. Stay with us, we'll be right back. the translation of that we are farmers not terrorists by atwadi and uh, the background of this is that there's been a huge a tremendous uh, strike of farmers that has been going on in india since september of 2020 and is still ongoing this is margaret prescott host of sojourner truth check out our website at www.sotrueradio.org if you're still a member of facebook we are uh just look for us there our handle on instagram and twitter at so true radio we're also nationwide and worldwide on soundcloud and today we'd like to give a shout out to our soundcloud listeners across rural areas across the united states and internationally we would like to give a shout out to our soundcloud listeners 
in India. We are now going to uh, turn our attention uh, to our weekly uh, Earth Watch. Um, just to share with you, COP26 is going on. The government of India, which is among the five top emitters of CO2, has been criticized for not taking enough action on climate change. And on Monday, November 8th, Indian Prime Minister uh, Modi announced 2070 as the target for his country to reach net zero carbon emissions, which is two decades beyond what scientists say is needed to avert catastrophic uh, climate uh, impacts. And only last week, India, currently the world's third biggest emitter of greenhouse gases after China and the United States, rejected calls to announce a net zero carbon emissions uh, target. And so there are a lot of uh, issues there in the uh, northern Indian states, which are mostly agricultural economies. They uh, suffer quite a bit. And uh, also, India is losing huge amounts of humid primary uh, forests. And here to uh, discuss some of this with us, we'd like to welcome uh, Suparna Lahiri, who is based in New Delhi, India, who is with the Global Forest Coalition's climate campaigner and advisor. The Global Forest Coalition is an international uh, coalition of NGOs and indigenous peoples organizations defending social justice and the rights of forest peoples in forest policies. Suparna, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Margaret. Okay, so uh, Suparna, I know you got to uh, listen to a little bit of um, Vijay's uh, presentation of what they are trying to do in terms of, of soil regeneration and the work that you're doing also an integral uh, part of this because protecting the trees, uh, such an important part of that work. So uh, tell us your concerns now as COP26 is, is meeting and what is happening with the forests in India. If you so talk of COP26, uh, things are looking not very good because outstanding issues are still to be trashed out. We have 24 hours to go uh, for this COP to end tomorrow, precisely Friday, and outstanding issues on finance, flow uh, from developed countries, outstanding issues on loss and damage, outstanding issues on adaptation funds, and then to complete the agreement on Paris rule book, uh, parties have to agree on Article 6, and all these four are not much moving ahead in that sense. So uh, we don't know that uh, how the COP will end tomorrow, and then precisely uh, to finish the Paris rule book, it is necessary that Article 6 uh, agreement has, uh, the Article 6 has to be agreed with the parties, and we don't see uh, much consensus at this point of time. The text, the last iteration of text has come about four hours back, and we still see a lot of uh, contentious issues within Article 6 still heavily bracketed, which means that they still remain unresolved. We have one night and few hours tomorrow to resolve. And uh, though 
we hear there is a tremendous pressure from the COP26 presidency to resolve these issues, but I'm not sure how these how these widely divergent views can be resolved in 24 hours. Uh, finance also under Article 9 is not progressing much, although UK had said that they will be uh, kind of uh, committing to the old commitment of 100 billion US dollars per year from 2023. We actually need more than that at this point to keep uh, our commitments as for the 2030 milestone of uh, reducing our emission by 45% over 2010. And then the loss and damage is a huge issue, which is also not moving forward as such. So this is what, uh, in a, in a gist, is the COP26 story in front of you. And thank you for your uh, views on, on what is happening. Uh, we have um, been sharing some of that information with our listeners. Before we run out of time, though, can you tell us about the concerns about what's happening with the forests in India? Because forests obviously play a very, very important role in the environment. Uh, Suparna. Yes. So, uh, so. Uh, Going through the nationally determined uh, commitment, uh, which is a report that uh, Indian government and all other parties to the Paris Agreement has to file, and the last NDC India filed before the Paris Agreement in 2015, forest has been a, a kind of a major uh, game changer in that because it, the India government has committed to increase sequestration and forest cover over the years, basically to offset for the other, uh, what, you, what we call economy-wide emissions. Now, we are, we are uh, the uh, government agencies are updating the forest cover, uh, tree cover, almost every two years. But, uh, you know, in India, According to the laws, legally you can deforest and uh, you can also, uh, uh, there, there is also law against illegal deforestation. So uh, we are concerned that as India is claiming that it is increasing forest cover, but the, but the forest, the health of the forest actually is not at all good at this point of time. Uh, there is increased degradation within the forest and and the forest diversion which is a legal term that we use in india which means deforestation continues because in india legally you can divert forest for development projects and and for development projects if it is being cleared by the environment and climate change and forest ministries uh, committees uh, a, a project can, for a project to take off uh, the amount of forest that they need to divert against the deforestation can be cleared. And so these clearances are coming. It, it's not that the clearances have stopped. So what India's position is that 
for India's economic development and growth, they need uh, forest diversion up to a limit. But you know that limit is sometimes on average now at this point of time is anywhere between 15,000 to 25,000 hectares per year. So deforestation has not stopped. Deforestation is there. And in the midst of it, Indian government is claiming that the forest cover is increasing. And incidentally, this forest cover data uh, comprises not the original recorded forest area alone, but non-forest areas outside the forest area. And then you uh, add to it the tree cover. So apparently, it seems that the forest cover is increasing, but we are concerned about what is happening inside the recorded forest area, and and that concern still remains. So, uh, carbon sequestration or increasing forest cover, unfortunately to us, it still remains a concern and failing. I would say. Right, and, and clearly the the impact that this has on people who live in the forest. I mean, just as in the Amazon and um, parts of the continent of Africa, there are people who live in the forest, and they have their rights. They've been living there. They've been taking care of the forest also. Um, and I imagine that this deforestation that you're referring to has had a tremendous and negative impact on that. We just have about a minute, uh, Suparna, if you could... Uh, comment on the impact of on the rights of forest people. Huge, huge impact. We have a very progressive and historic uh, uh, legislation conferring and recognizing the rights of the forest dwellers in India since 2006. But on one side, there is a very slow and almost no implementation in many areas of recording of rights of the forest dwellers. At the same time, the rights of the forest dwellers to say yes or no to the clearance for the diversion for a development project is what is of main concern. Because we have village councils, which are constitutional bodies now, and they are empowered by the legislation that for every development project to get forest clearance, there should be a rater of consent from the village council. And most of the time we find that these village councils are not at all consulted, let alone having the rater of consent from, from them. And if there, and if the village Councils do rise up and so and say no. Very rarely their voices are heard, and so many of these village councils and communities have gone to the court uh, to stop uh, these kind of practices. And as you are saying, is it has to be a huge in, impact on the communities because the forest that they live in is their existence. It, it, their, their spiritual, cultural relations uh, is, is there with the forest. They have a symbiotic relationship. Their livelihood depends on uh, the forest. So it's, it's, the, it's the same story of not 
using, not have having the key prior informed consent of the forest communities when you do something with the forest, let alone diverting forests for non-forest activities. And the struggle, uh, many forest communities today in India are struggling for their rights till now and, and for their existence and, and, and to conserve and preserve forests following their customary practices, traditional knowledge and wisdom. And that is the most challenging part today for the forest communities. And we hope that, you know, that has to be recognized fast and now to also resolve the climate crisis that we are facing at this point of time. Absolutely. And on that note, uh, Suparna, we are going to have uh, to leave it there. Suparna, who is uh, based in New Delhi, India, and the Global Forest Coalition's Climate Campaign and Advisor. We also want to thank the Global Justice Ecology Project. We partner with them for our weekly Earth Minute and our weekly Earth Watch. And Suparna, just to say that uh, a lot of us are, are really keeping an eye very closely on what is happening with the movements in India from the massive strike of farmers uh, to the, the work of, of people like uh, Vijay uh, Kumar and the women who are very involved in the natural uh, farming, offering examples to the rest of uh, many of us, particularly in, in the Western world, on soil degradation and, of course, your work in protecting uh, not only forests, but the rights of forest people. So a lot going on on what many refer to as the subcontinent uh, we really appreciate your work and we appreciate you joining us. Suparna Lahiri, thank you. All righty. Uh, so uh, this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. And uh, this entire hour, we have been focusing on uh, various aspects of the environment. And we're now going to wrap up our show. I'd like to welcome to Sojourner Truth, Patrick Iokamides, who is a musician, an educator, an activist who's been involved with social justice issues for many years, including co-leading for the Seminarians for Social Justice at Claremont School of Theology and volunteering with groups such as Reform LAJ and Justice LA. Most recently, Patrick has been involved with actions and organizing through the California Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival, including he is active with various working groups of the California PPC, their arts and culture working group, the faith working group, and the policy and education working groups. Patrick, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Margaret. Okay, so Patrick, uh, I'm afraid uh, not a lot of time here, but we, uh, you are involved. You have actually been convening a working group on uh, an event having to do with the climate crisis that's coming up this weekend. Tell us about that, Patrick. That's right. Thank you. It's the Climate Crisis Webinar, and it's scheduled for this Sunday, November 14th at 3 p.m. Pacific Standard Time to 4.30 We've got some amazing speakers lined up for us. Um, Tom Goldtooth is the executive director and founder of the Indigenous Environmental Network. We also have William Barber III, who happens to be the son of um, leader Reverend Barber II, and he is the strategic partnerships manager for the Climate Reality Project. In addition, there's Jacqueline Patterson, 
who was the senior director of the NAACP Environmental and Climate Justice Program and is the founder and current chair of the Chisholm Legacy Project. Um, we'll have a testimonial from Josiah Edwards, who's a young climate organizer based in Los Angeles, and he's working as the Sunrise Movement Los Angeles Hub Coordinator. Um, in addition, we'll have a call to action that features Trinity Tran, who's also here in L.A. She's the co-founder and lead organizer of both Public Bank L.A. and the California Banking Alliance. Right, and and people uh, can register. You're still accepting registrations for this event, and they can go to the Facebook page of the California Poor People's Campaign to get that information. But also, um, Pacifica Radio Network, we are media partners of the Poor People's Campaign, and for transparency, I'm also part of the coordinating group for California uh, Poor People's Campaign. So if you go to the KPFK website, actually there is information information uh, coming up about this event. But uh, Patrick, just your thoughts now, given what is happening uh, in Glasgow with with COP26 and all that we know that's happening uh, with the environment here. um, We know that the Poor People's Campaign, one of their pillars has to do with environmental uh, devastation and their uh, several parts of the Poor People's Campaign Jubilee platform are related to uh, the environment as well. So just your final thoughts on the importance of the Poor People's Campaign's efforts and focusing on this event and uh, encouraging people to participate in this event, uh, Patrick. Well, thank you. I mean, we see is the climate crisis really is the fight of our lives, and the Poor People's Campaign recognizes that racism, poverty, militarism, ecological devastation, religious nationalism, these are all connected, and in order to take any one on, we have to take them all on. And all these come together and form a perfect storm, if you will, in this crisis we're facing in the climate crisis. And so and it especially impacts people of color and indigenous people on the front lines, our speakers are going to help us understand the nature of this crisis, so providing insight into ways these people on the front lines are impacted, as well as empowering us with ways to take action, join together in compassion and build real community to overcome this greed, this common enemy of greed and corruption that is just you know wreaking havoc on our planet. Absolutely. Um, You're absolutely right there. And uh, again, the event will be live streamed. So Sojourner Truth listeners, uh, you can get access to it. But there's also a proposal from the Pacifica stations in New York, as well as Washington, D.C., to carry the event live. It is this coming Sunday, November the 13th from 3 to 4.30 Pacific time, and that's between uh, 6 and 7.30 p.m. East Coast time, 5 to 6.30 p.m. Central time. And Tom Goldtooth, we know he is at COP26 uh, now. I think Jackie Patterson, one of our speakers there as well, and William Barber the third, deep, deep, involvement um, with the Climate Reality Project. So we're very much looking forward to it. Patrick, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. All righty. Thank you and thank you to KPFK for helping with that. All right. 
Sure. We are out of time today. Show produced by Margaret Prescott. We have our new audio engineer, Wendell Handy. Uh, I'd like to thank our assistant producer, Romero Funes. If you'd like a copy of today's show, please contact the Pacifica Radio Archives. Sojourner Truth will be back on the air tomorrow with our weekly roundtable. It's back. You won't want to miss that. A lot going on in the world. Thank you for listening. And you all, remember to please stay safe.